Awesome. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Grace here at the Medina East Campus. Super excited to have you. And like uh, Steve just mentioned a minute ago, if you happen to be someone who's a guest, if it's your first time at uh, the Medina East Campus, or if you happen to be catching us on live stream this morning, wherever you might be, if it's your first time here, uh, we just want to extend a very, very special welcome to all of you. Thanks for uh, joining us together here this morning. And I'm excited because we actually are in part two, week two, of a six-week series that we are calling powerless to change, question mark, and then uh, the tagline is life through the spirit. And so uh, this is a six-week journey, a six-week conversation that we're on. And like I said, this is week two. And so if you happen to be new, uh, let me just kind of recap a little bit of what we talked about last week. I think that might help us as we, as we kind of continue on uh, uh, week two here uh, this week. So last week, we did an introduction, and uh, Pastor Kevin actually led us in that. He did an awesome job. And a couple of things that Kevin said last week that I just wanted to highlight uh, is he said this. He, he, he uh, mentioned this statement. This is actually a statement that we said here at the Medina East Campus all the way back at Easter. And so if you are part of our church, you might actually remember back at Easter Sunday, we actually made this statement. We said, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, uh, which by the way, is the historical, um, is the, is the historical uh, claim of Christianity. And it's also the, the claim of this church, the kind of the foundation of this church is that we believe that Jesus Christ historically uh, bodily rose from the dead, literally actually rose from the dead. And so what we said is this, if Jesus rose from the dead, if that's true, that means that we have to take everything that he said seriously, that we have to take what he said seriously, not casually. In other words, if it's true that Jesus Christ actually physically bodily rose from the dead, in a lot of ways that validates everything that he's ever said about everything. So anything that Jesus said about life, anything that Jesus said about death, anything that Jesus said about the afterlife, anything that Jesus ever said about anything, we should take very seriously, not as an option, not as a preference, but as reality, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So what we did then here at our campus is we actually decided to do that. We said, well, let's take what Jesus said very seriously. And we actually spent several months uh, looking at the most famous body of teaching that exists from Jesus Christ in something called the Sermon on the Mount. And so we worked through that, and I talked through that. And I love what Kevin said last week. And if you guys were here, you might remember he said this. He said, you know, when we look at Jesus's teaching, and even if you weren't with us for the, the previous series, when we went through the Sermon on the Mount. He, I think if you've ever read the teachings of Jesus, you have probably felt this tension that, that Kevin was talking about last week. And that's this, that on one hand, when you read Jesus's teachings, I think that all of us would probably agree that in many senses, they are beautiful. Uh, the things that Jesus has to say, uh, his vision of life and his vision of humanity is absolutely compelling and it's absolutely beautiful. So if you look at Jesus' teachings, he's gonna say things like this. He's gonna say that we should love our enemies, that we should live a life of love, where we love our enemies, where we bless those who curse us. Jesus is gonna say things like we should turn the other cheek. Uh, Jesus is gonna say we should pray for people who persecute us. Jesus is gonna say things like this, that we should not look at other people with lust in our hearts to them. He's gonna talk about things like anger and about how our anger is not what God, human anger is not what God desires for us. And I think all of us would say that when you look at Jesus' teaching, on one hand, I think we'd all agree, if every human being on planet Earth lived according to the vision of humanity that Jesus sets forth, this world would be an amazing place. It'd be a beautiful, amazing place. However, there's the other side of the tension, which is that Jesus' teaching is also unbelievably challenging. In fact, I don't know if challenging goes far enough. Uh, Jesus' teaching, I think if you're being really honest, is for us impossible. It's just not possible. 
to love my enemy completely, to not struggle with human anger totally, to not look at another person with lust in my heart. I don't know about you, but for me, I'm, I'm filled with an overwhelming sense of, yes, that's beautiful, and yes, I agree, but I can't do that. I can't find it in myself to do that. And I think for any of us who are genuinely trying to follow God in our life, I think that it causes us to ask some really maybe important questions. So for some of us, we find ourselves asking the question like this, am I destined, if I'm trying to follow God with my life, am I destined to live a life of utter defeat and exhaustion trying to live out the Christian life, right? Is my life trying to follow Jesus just going to be confined to a cycle of grit and guilt, where I just try to grit it out and I'm gonna try my hardest to do the things Jesus said, but inevitably I'm going to fail and then I'm just gonna be full of guilt until eventually I muster up enough energy to try again and it's just gonna be that over and over again. I think maybe we find ourselves asking questions like this. Are our attempts to change, are our attempts to actually live out the life that God desires for us just an exercise in futility? Like, is that what this is? I, I remember I was talking to a person and they explained their frustration with the Christian life like this. I thought this was actually a really helpful illustration. They said, I feel like when I'm trying to follow God from, in my life, sometimes it feels like I'm just trying to push a beach ball underwater. And I'm basically just trying to take all the bad parts of myself and I'm trying to push them down as hard as I can. But inevitably what happens is I get tired and I get frustrated. And then in my moments of exhaustion, it just comes popping back up again. And so whether it be my pride or whether it be my lust or whether it be my anger, I feel like I'm just suppressing it and pushing it down. And the harder I push it down, the more embarrassing it is because it pops up even higher in my life. And it, I think we might ask the question, is that, is that what the Christian life is like? And ultimately, I think the question is, are we powerless to change? Am I powerless to change? And I think those are the questions that sometimes we find ourselves asking. Now, let me just say, that if the answer to any of these questions up here on the screen, if the answer to any of them is yes, if the answer to all of them is yes, then I can just tell you this, that there is absolutely no point in us doing this series whatsoever. There's no point. And so I am happy to report to you that here at the Medina East Campus, we are totally convinced, and I am totally convinced of this reality right here, that, listen, the real change, the real change that God really desires for you is really possible. Like, it's really possible. And let me just say that again, because my guess is for some of you, you need to hear that, and maybe that is something that you didn't even know was a possibility. The real change that God really wants for your life, that he really, the life that God really wants for you is actually really possible. It is a reality. And for some of us, we might be thinking that that sounds like wishful thinking. And the question is, well, how? How is it possible? Well, of course, this is where Romans chapter eight comes in. And this whole series is actually built out of this one chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter eight. So if you've got your Bibles, I wanna encourage you and invite you to go ahead and flip them open with me. Romans eight is where we're gonna go. And uh, if you didn't bring your own Bible, under the chairs, page 916 is where you're gonna find Romans eight. If you don't own a Bible, have one of ours. We'd love for you to take that home. So Romans 8, I want you to get there. And like I said, for the next five weeks of the series, we're going to be in this one chapter looking at Romans chapter 8. And so you might want to bookmark it, keep it there. As you're finding Romans chapter 8, um, if, you, if you've been around the Bible for any length of time, my guess is that you've probably heard of this chapter. Uh, this chapter is oftentimes known as the 
the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. And uh, many Bible commentators, Bible scholars, Bible students, in fact, I might even say this, most of them would say this is the greatest chapter in the Bible. And I'll tell you, when you read it, you can see why. Uh, Romans 8 has it all. One of the things I love about Romans 8 is you know, so many chapters in the Bible, so many chapters are about what to do, 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 what to do. Romans 8 is all about how to do it. How are we going to get the power to do it? Now, let me just say, before we even look at one single verse in Romans 8, which I'm just going to go ahead and warn you, we're not going to get very far today. We're only going to get a couple of verses in here to the thing today. But before we even start looking at a couple of verses, I actually want to take a moment to look at the whole chapter, just look at the whole thing, kind of instead of like, 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 like look at it very closely, I want, I want to invite you just to look at it from a distance for a second. So if you look at Romans 8, in fact, if you have it in front of you, even if you just glance down at the whole chapter, you will probably notice if you read it and if you look at it that there is one word that is repeated in Romans 8 more than any other. And if you read it and if you look at it long enough, it will jump off the page at you when you see it. And that the word is, what you're going to see, is that the main character and the main theme of Romans chapter 8 is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what you're going to see. We talked about this last week. This whole series is about the Holy Spirit who Romans 8 is going to tell us is the power to change. I'll tell you what's fascinating. In Romans chapter 8, if you count, the Holy Spirit is mentioned a total of 21 times in Romans chapter 8, which is staggering because in the first seven chapters of Romans, the Holy Spirit is mentioned once. And so it's almost like you go through the book of Romans, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and then when you get to chapter 8, it's almost like, ladies and gentlemen, the Holy Spirit. And we are introduced to this to the main character of the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. I actually thought this was kind of cool. There's actually a website out there. It's called Tag Crowd. I don't know if you guys ever heard of this, but it's a website where you can take a body of text and you can insert it into this website and it'll generate for you a, um, uh, what do you call those things? A, A word cloud. Did you guys ever see word clouds before? So a word cloud is basically a visual depiction of the words that are most repeated in a certain text. So I went to Tag Crowd and I inserted Romans chapter eight. And let me just show you the visual picture of Romans chapter eight. Here, here's the visual picture. And so you can see, it's super evident when you look at this. What is the main theme? Who is the main character of Romans chapter eight? Well, very clearly, it's the spirit. And more specifically, it is the spirit of God. And, and so this whole series about the power, about powerless to change, life through the spirit, what we're going to see is that the, the power to change in the Christian life, the power for us for real transformation comes in the Holy Spirit. Now, I also just want to be super clear, uh, just to kind of, you know, for the next five weeks, this might be helpful for us. When the Bible talks about the spirit, there's actually many names that are given to him. And so the Holy Spirit is uh, sometimes called just the spirit. And so here in Romans chapter eight, most of the time he's gonna be called the spirit. Sometimes the spirit of God, sometimes the spirit of the Lord, sometimes the spirit of truth, sometimes the spirit of Christ. Depending on your translation, sometimes he's called the Holy Ghost, which I always thought was a little spooky, you know, the Holy Ghost, and maybe that's what he wants to be called during Halloween, I don't know, that kind of thing. And then you have the helper and you have the comforter. And I just want you to know that in weeks to come, if you hear me say these different phrases, I'm talking about the same person. 
And the person that we're referring to is the Holy Spirit. So he's gonna be called a lot of different things throughout the scripture, but this is who it is that we're talking about. And the Bible's gonna tell us that the, the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers and enables real transformation in the life of those who follow Christ. But here's the issue, and this is why I think this series is so important that we spend the next weeks focusing on this together, is that for many, many, many people, in fact, maybe even for many of us in this room, the conversation about interacting with the Holy Spirit is one that is confusing. It is one that is misunderstood. It is one that is often neglected. And depending on how you grew up, it's also a conversation that is often abused. But if it's true that Romans 8 is telling us that the Holy Spirit is the power for genuine transformation in our lives, then I think it's essential that we understand how to interact and to live by the Spirit. So last week, what we did was Pastor Kevin really set a very important foundation. We talked about some foundational truths about the Holy Spirit. If you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and check that out. But this week, and for the next four weeks after this, all I wanna do is I wanna go through Romans chapter eight, and I wanna answer this very simple question. Here's the question. How are we to understand, how are we to relate to, and how are we to interact with the Holy Spirit? That's the question. My hope is that we can gain some clarity on this. Uh, what does it look like? How am I to understand, to relate to, and interact with the Holy Spirit? We're gonna look through Romans 8 and talk about those things. I believe it's gonna give us an incredible amount of clarity and hopefully an incredible amount of even practicality and what it looks like to walk by and to live by the Spirit. But today, as we start this whole thing off, I believe that we have to begin here. So when we're talking about how do we understand the Holy Spirit, how do we relate to him, how do we interact with him, I think we have to start here with this very singular foundational truth about the Holy Spirit. And let me just tell you that this one thing I'm gonna tell you is the only thing that I actually wanna try to get across today, all right? And that's this, it's this. The Holy Spirit, when you think about the Spirit, the Spirit gives life. All right, so if we're gonna understand the Holy Spirit properly, if we're gonna understand the, the Holy Spirit biblically, I think we have to begin here. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives life. This is an essential, foundational, primary aspect. Any sincere Bible reader, anyone who is sincerely reading the Bible, if I was to ask you what is one of the primary things that you need to know about the Holy Spirit, one of the first things that should come to your mind is this, the Spirit gives life. This is gonna be a massive theme in in Romans chapter eight. This is also a massive theme in the whole Bible. Now, let me just show you real quick. Romans chapter eight, let's take a look at verse one. Here's what it says. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which by the way, that's like the great, one of the greatest verses ever in the whole Bible. And I promise you we'll be coming back to that a little bit later in this series. So therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the, now notice this, the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, I understand that some of the language in here might sound a little bit a little complicated and a little bit confusing, but here's what I want you to notice, and you can't miss this. The very first thing that Romans chapter eight is going to tell us about the Holy Spirit, the very first thing is this. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life. This is gonna be repeated, a repeated theme throughout Romans chapter eight. Let me just show you a couple other examples. If you look down at verse 10 in Romans chapter eight, it says, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. 
And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also, say it with me, give life to you, to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So you're going to see this is a big theme. What does the Holy Spirit do? The spirit gives life. Romans 8, what is the first thing it tells us about the Holy Spirit? He gives life. When you read through the Bibles, what are you going to see is that when you read through all the scriptures, all the books of the Bible, what is the consistent theme about the Holy Spirit that you're going to see? The Spirit gives life. Some of you are like, I get it. You're making your point. The Spirit gives life. But I'm just telling you, I haven't went far enough. So let me, let me see if I can make it even more clear. All right. So let me put it to you this way. Let, let's say that here today I was to say a name. All right. So let's say I was to say the name Gordon Ramsay, as I say that name to you. You guys know who Gordon Ramsay is? Is that guy? Okay. My guess is who's coming to your mind, very, very famous man. You'd think of this guy right here, Gordon Ramsay. Now, let me ask you this question. Gordon Ramsay does a lot of stuff. He, I'm sure he, there's a lot of things he's involved in. But what is the primary thing that comes to your mind when you think of Gordon Ramsay? When you think of him, what is the thing that he is the most notorious for doing? What is that? What is it? Right. Yeah, he cooks. He, he makes food. He's a chef. Now, some of you might argue with me, and you might say, well, actually, what he does now is he makes fun of people who make food. And that's kind of accurate, but that's what he's known for. He's a chef. Gordon Ramsay's a chef. Now, he does a lot of other things in his life, I'm sure, but the thing he's famously, notoriously known for is that he makes food. Or how about this one? Let's say I was to give you another name. Let's say I was to say Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. Now, my guess is most of you in the room would know who he is. He's a very, very famous person. If you don't know who he is, what is he known for? What is he known for, for those who know him? Yeah, he makes music. He makes music. And I happen to think he makes some really great music. Some of the stuff he comes out with is really awesome. Uh, or how about this one? Okay, I'll give you one more name. And this one, by the way, only makes sense to those of us who are here in Ohio, who live in Ohio. So if you're not from Ohio, this might not make sense. If you're watching online and you're a different state, this might not make sense. But if I was to say the name Tim Misney to you, if I was to say that name... <laughs> Let me ask you, what does he do? He makes them pay. That's what Tim, I don't even know who they are, and I don't even know what he does, but he makes people pay. That's what he does. And I'm guessing he makes his clients pay too. He probably makes everyone pay, right? That's what he does. And and listen, here's all I'm saying, all right? If I say Gordon Ramsay, you say he makes food. If I say Ed Sheeran, you say he makes music. If I say Tim Misney, you say he makes them pay. When I say Holy Spirit... When I say the Holy Spirit, what is the first thing that should come to your mind? What is the Holy Spirit most notorious for throughout the pages of Scripture? And I just want to tell you, I believe, I'm confident that if you asked every biblical author, Old Testament or New Testament, that question, I believe if you asked Jesus Christ that question, I believe if you asked any sincere Bible reader that question, they would all say the same thing. Oh, the Spirit, he gives life. The Spirit gives life. Because that's what the Spirit does. It's the first thing we're told in Romans 8. In fact, did you know, do you know the first place the Holy Spirit is ever mentioned in the Bible? Do you know where it's at? It's actually on the very first page of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. And do you know what he's doing in Genesis chapter 1? I'll I'll leave you guessing. He's doing, he's making them pay. (laughs) That's what he's doing in Genesis. Let, Let me show you. In fact, you can flip there if you want to, or you can just look at the verses on the screen if you want to stay in Romans 8. This is Genesis 1, very first page of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is the creation account. We have it here in front of us. And I think all of us, for the most part, are probably familiar with verse one. But are you familiar with verse two? Look what verse two says. Now the earth was formless and void, or formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And notice, the spirit of God 
was hovering over the water. So right away, we are introduced to the Spirit of God, to the Holy Spirit here in the scripture. Now, isn't that interesting? The Bible's gonna say that the earth was formless and void, which meant that it was lifeless, it was chaotic, it was, um, it was, uh, there was, it was darkness, it was, it was chaotic and, and all those type of things. And the Bible says that when God decides to create, that how does he do that? Well, the Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit comes. And what does the Spirit do? Well, the language is really interesting. Do you notice this? The Bible says what the Spirit does is he begins hovering over the void. It's a really weird word, the word hovering. Actually, it's kind of fascinating. In the Hebrew language, that word is used elsewhere, and it's used to refer to a uh, mother dove who is lovingly hovering or flapping her wings above her nest where her babies would be. It's this picture right here. So what's the, what is the Holy Spirit doing? Well, the Bible says the Holy Spirit, I don't think the Holy Spirit's doing this, by the way. I don't know what I'm doing right now. But the, the Holy Spirit, this, this, the presence of the Spirit comes and then notice what the Bible tells us. It says that it hovers above the chaos and over the darkness and over the deep. I'll tell you something else I think is really clarifying to me. The word that's used for spirit in the original Hebrew language, so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, is a really helpful word, I think. It's actually this word right here. It's the word ruach, the word ruach. And I am not a, a Hebrew you know, kind of expert, but I've been told by Hebrew experts that when you say this word, you have to get your throat involved. So you have to say ruach. So you guys want to give it a shot? You want to go try? Go ahead and say ruach, and you got to get your throat. Ruach. So you got that, right? Now, I want you to do this real quick. Next, I want you to say it again. Put your hand in front of your face. Put your hand right here and say ruach, and get your throat involved. Ruach. Go ahead, do it. Ruach. You feel that? So did you, did you feel that when he said it? So that's kind of the idea, actually. Interestingly, the word ruach that's used in the Hebrew language is translated spirit, but it also is sometimes translated wind or breath. That's pretty fascinating. So we're talking about God's wind, God's breath, God's spirit. What does that even, what does that even mean? Well, I think this actually helps us get a window into the way that the Hebrew mind would have thought. So in Hebrew thinking, your breath was directly connected to your life. If you're breathing, you're alive. If you're not breathing, you're not alive. It's actually not too dissimilar today. So here's a kind of a silly analogy. Let's say that this afternoon, you decided you were gonna go for a walk and you went to a park and as you rounded a corner of a trail, there on the trail, you saw a uh, unconscious person laying there, just a person who was laying there, seemingly lifeless, right? Now, what would you do if you came across that scene? Well, I hope you would help. I hope you'd call 911 and those kind of things. But one of the first things you might do is you might see if they're still alive. You might check to see if they're alive. And how would you do that? Well, maybe you check their pulse. Maybe that's what you would do. Or you might see if they're breathing. Like if you, you might, maybe you'd look to see if their chest was rising and falling or you'd put your hand in, or if you, had a, if you happen to have a little pocket mirror, I don't know, you know, maybe you'd put it under their nose and see if it fogged up or something like, it's a silly analogy, but, but the point is this, is that one of the reasons that you know that a person's alive is because they have breath. Well, in the Hebrew mind, that is actually how they thought. And so when the Bible says that the spirit of God, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, I want you to notice what happens next. The Bible says then right after this, God speaks. That through his spirit, through his ruach, God speaks. And through his word that is empowered by his spirit, 
The Bible's gonna tell us that it's through God's word and through God's spirit that creation comes into being. Now, if you've ever went through Genesis 1, you will see with every successive step of creation, God speaks. And as he speaks, what happens? Life. Life. Order out of chaos. Light comes into darkness. Life emerges. And why is that? Because the spirit is in the business of giving life. That's what he does. You're gonna see it in Genesis 2. It says, God formed the man, formed mankind out of the dust. And what did he do after he formed the man? He breathed into his nostrils. He breathed the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And so what we see in scripture is that our life, the life that we have within us, is on loan from God. The breath that we have, the life that we have, is something that is derived from his life. And the spirit is the one we see who gives life. Now again, like I said, this is the first thing we see in the Bible is the spirit gives life. This is the thread that you're gonna see all throughout woven in scripture. So you're gonna see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I could give you so many verses on this and I won't, but let me just give you a couple. So here's an example. In Job, Job 34, he says, if it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit, his ruach and breath, All of humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. In other words, the life that we have has been given to us by the Spirit. The life that we have is on loan to us from the Spirit. In the New Testament, you're gonna see the same idea. What What is the Spirit doing in the New Testament? Well, he's doing what he always does. He's giving life. In fact, let me just show you. I think this is an interesting passage. In Luke 1, the Bible tells us about the birth of Jesus. And there's an angel who comes to Mary and says, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. But Mary says, how is this gonna happen? She said to the angel, because I'm a virgin. So she's like, okay, I'm gonna have a child. I'm going to birth life. But how is that even gonna happen? And because I've never interacted with another person that way before. And then the, and then the angel said, well, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is gonna come on you and the power of the Most High is going to overshadow. Now, this is an interesting word. The word overshadow is directly connected to the Hebrew word for hovering. And so what's happening? Well, the Spirit is doing what the Spirit does. The Spirit is giving life. You're gonna see the same thing in the New Testament. Jesus is gonna, this is Jesus. The Spirit gives life, is what Jesus says. And the words that I have spoken to you are full of Spirit and life. In 2 Corinthians 3, the Spirit gives life. That's what the Bible's gonna tell us. Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead after he was crucified, how did that happen? How did Jesus rise from the dead? What, what empowered him to do that? The Spirit raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So I think you get it. I'm belaboring the point. The Spirit gives life. And I don't just mean physical life, by the way. I mean life, all manner of life, the fullness of life, the life that God desires for us, vitality that he envisions for us. The Spirit gives life. And so we see that throughout Scripture. But here's the problem. The problem is that when you get to the third chapter of Genesis, you're gonna see that there is another reality that is introduced into the human equation, that is introduced into the human story. And what is that reality? Well, the Bible is gonna say that humankind takes the borrowed existence that we've been given by God. We take the borrowed breath of God in our life. And instead of worshiping God and following him and praising him with the life that he's given, we choose to take that life and turn from him define life on our own terms and walk away from the author of life. The Bible calls that sin, calls it rebellion and calls it sin. And here's the issue. Ever since Genesis chapter three, 
The Bible is going to reinforce this, that sin brings death. Sin brings death. Genesis 3, God says, you will die because of sin. In, Gen- in, in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. And by the way, not just physical death. Yes, physical death, ultimately. But we're talking about relational death. We're talking about spiritual death. We're talking about emotional death. We're talking about psychological death. We're talking about physiological death. Death on, in, in every way, sin leads to death. And so in a lot of ways, what you see in scripture is that sin is entirely antithetical to the spirit. The spirit wants to give life, and sin takes life and steals life. The spirit creates, and sin destroys. The spirit brings order out of chaos. Sin just brings chaos and destroys things that are in order. And so you have have this war that's happening here. And here's the problem. The problem is, is that God loves you, and he wants for you and for me. And I just want you to know this. Even if you're someone who doesn't follow Jesus, God loves you. And what he wants for us is he wants us to have the fullness of life. That's what he desires for us. He wants us to have life to the fullest degree, to the richest, most vitalized life you've ever had. He desires that for us. But the problem is, is that there's sin. And sin keeps stealing us and robbing us from the life that God wants for us. So it's a dilemma. So what does God do about this dilemma? Well, this is where Romans 8 comes in, right? So Romans 8, look what it says. It says, therefore, therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, because of Jesus Christ, because of what he's done, namely through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, the Bible is going to say there is now no condemnation because through him, through Jesus, because of what he's done, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, I told you, some of the wording of this sounds very complex, but but let me explain to you what he's trying to say here because it's so important. You'll notice that there are mentioned here two laws. There are two laws. One is the law of the spirit who gives life. The other is the law of sin and death. Now, what does that mean when he says that? Well, the word law uh, in, in, in the Greek language, much like the English language, it can be used in a couple different ways. So if I say law, one thing that I'm talking about, one thing that I mean is I could be talking about a very specific rule. So if I said, don't jaywalk, right? That's against the law. I'm giving you a specific law. But there's another way that I could use the word law. And it's, as, it's to refer to the entire system of law. So if I said, for example, if I said, I fought the law and the law won, Like if I said that, which I don't know why I'd ever say that, what am I saying? I'm saying I I bucked against the system. I was bucking the the whole system of law. Or let's say that I left this country and I said I'm no longer under American laws, I'm now under a different law. What am I saying? I'm talking about the entire system. So when he says the law of the spirit who gives life and the law of sin and death, he's talking about not a singular rule, he's talking about the entire system. I actually think the New Living Translation is helpful. The New Living Translation says it this way, because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Now again, that still might sound kind of complicated, so let me see if I can put it this way. When I was reading this, what came to my mind 
because I couldn't help but think of my little daughter. So uh, if you guys have been around here and you've ever heard me talk, you know, I have, my wife and I have four kids and we got three little boys and then we have one little princess, one little, little girl, her name's Gracie. She's five and she's, you know, she's kind of daddy's girl a little bit. She's five years old. And one of, the, one of the things that she loves to do and she always wants to do is she wants to play games. She loves to play board games and card games and she's always saying, dad, can we play a game? Dad, can we play a game? And right now, the game that she's really into is this game called Slam Witch. I don't know if you guys have ever played this. It's actually really fun. If you're five, it's a blast. And it's a, it's a card game, and I, I actually enjoy it. And so we play. And I'll be honest with you, Gracie is actually really good at it. She is. I even try to win, and I, I often can't because she's really good at it. And when she beats me, which is most of the time, um, do you know what she does? She's such a sweet girl, but do you know what she does when she beats me? And she gloats. And she gloats hard. I mean, she will, like all day long, she will make sure that everyone knows that I lost and she won. She will tell her siblings. She will shout it out. She will, she will criticize my character. And no, I'm just kidding. She just will, she will go hard after. I mean, she is ruthless whenever she wins. So, so when we play, sometimes what happens is I win. And when I win, do you know what I do? Because, you know, I'm trying to be a good parent and I'm trying to teach her good sportsmanlike conduct. So you guys know what I do when I win. I gloat with equal and opposite force. I just go after that girl. And uh, it's maybe not the best parenting technique, but what I do is I go after her. And so I, I came up with this one little line and there's this one little line I say it every single time I win and I say it because she hates it. Oh, she hates it. And here's the line that I say. I say, Gracie, I say, I win. And then I go, looks like there's a new sheriff in town. That's my line. I don't even know what that means exactly. But I'm like, Gracie, there's a new, she's like, oh. And I'm like, there's a new sheriff in town, right? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. What I mean is there is a new law. There is a new order. There is a new reality. The old way has been dethroned. There is a new victor who is on the throne, and there is a new law in this house. That's what I mean by that. Now listen, when the apostle Paul says, because of Christ Jesus and what he has done through his death and burial and resurrection, he's saying the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. There is a new sheriff in town. There is a new sheriff. The old order is gone is dead and has been dethroned, and there is a new power and there is a new reality that is available to you that was not available prior to this moment right here because of Jesus Christ. If I could put it to you this way, without Jesus, listen, without Jesus, we have no chance and we have no choice against sin. None. We have no chance and we have no choice to change in the way that God wants us to, apart from Christ Jesus and apart from the Holy Spirit. But the Bible's saying, not anymore. Not anymore. There's a new sheriff in town. And what that means is there's a new reality that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is a new dynamic and there is a new power that is at work within you. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. If I could put it simply... I would say it this way. The spirit gives life. That's what he always does. Sin, however, brings death. And sin condemns us to death. But the good news is, is that Jesus has defeated sin and death. 
And as a result of that, he has opened up a new reality for us that the spirit wants to bring us new life. And so where is the power to change gonna come from? Well, this is why the Bible's gonna say stuff like this. The Bible's gonna say, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Then you won't be doing what the sinful nature craves. Now, do you notice the language? This is so important. The language does not say the way to change is that you just have to try harder to keep Jesus's teaching. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, so I say, try to push the beach ball further down under the water and just be stronger and better at doing it. It's not what it says. It says, here's where it's at. The, the power to transform comes in following and being led by and letting your life be guided by the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. And the Bible's gonna tell us that the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, if you've put your faith in him, is in you. That same spirit is in you. And listen, he will, what? Give life. Because why? Because that's what he does. That's the business that he's in, is he gives life. Now, I wanna end our time by really just answering two anticipated questions that I'm anticipating that you might be asking in light of this conversation, all right? And so the reason I'm thinking maybe you're asking these two questions is because I found myself asking these two questions as I was preparing. And here they are, so I just wanna deal with these two questions and then we'll be done for the day. So anticipated question number one. Some of you might be saying to yourself, okay, I hear what you're saying. The spirit gives life, sin brings death. Jesus has conquered sin, and now there's new life that's found in the spirit. That's really interesting. That's really neat. The Bible verses were cool, but you might be thinking, okay, but um, so what? Like, okay, I got it. So what does that mean? And what is that actually, like, I came in here today, and I have real life issues that are happening in my life, and I'm going to leave today, and I'm going to go back to those real life issues that are in my life. So what does what you have to say have anything to do with my real life. And listen, my hope is, my hope is that you're beginning to make the connection if you haven't already, that the point is this, is this has everything to do with your life. It has everything to do with it. We cannot find the victory to truly change and live out the life that God desires for us apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives life and he's the only one who does. And so I think what that means is if in your life right now, there's places where you are experiencing lifelessness. If there's places in your life right now where you are experiencing death, and I don't just mean physical, I mean in all varieties, lifelessness in a relationship, the devitalization spiritually where you feel like you're distant from God and you can't feel his presence in your life anymore. If there's habits and there's, there's places in your life where you feel like it's stealing life, it's robbing life. If there's relationships that are dead in your life, where are you gonna find the power to experience true transformation in life in those things? Where do you go to find life? I think the Bible's telling us there's only one place. There's only one place. The Spirit gives life. He, he comes over chaotic, dark, voidless, dead situations. And he brings life because that's what he does. That's what he does. And so, you know, it's interesting. I believe that the highest fulfillment in this life is found in walking by the Holy Spirit. I think that's it. It's interesting. I was reading this, this study this past week by Pew Research. I don't know if you guys ever heard of Pew. They do um, relig religious studies out there, surveys. And they did this survey and they asked a bunch of people, 
And eight out of 10 people that they asked said that they wanted to be spiritual, that they desired to be spiritual people. They said that. What's fascinating is if you dig into what people mean by spiritual, you realize that there's, it's really, really confusing. What does it mean to be spiritual? What does that even mean? Does it mean that I practice mindfulness? Does it mean that I meditate? Does it mean that I do yoga? Does it mean that I, that I listen to you know, ambient music and stare at art and cry? Like, what does it mean to be a spiritual person? And I'll tell you what's interesting is in the Bible, do you know what it means to be spiritual? It's actually very simple. It means to be rightly related to the Holy Spirit. That's all it means. It means to be in a right relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you, that might lead to the second anticipated question. You might be thinking, okay, okay, I see what you're saying, but, but now what? Like, okay, I, I hear what you're saying. And if you're anything like me, at this point in the message, you're probably really craving some practicality. Because I know for me, I'm like, okay, I get it. The, po- you know, the power to change is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one. And so how do, I, how do I walk with the Spirit? How do I do that? Can you give me, the fi- give me the five steps? Give me the five things I need to do this week to unlock the power of the Holy Spirit in my life because I want the power to change. And the Holy Spirit is, so tell me what I need to do. And, and let me just tell you that here is where I think we have to be really careful. You gotta be really careful. And here's why. Because on one hand, yes. Romans chapter eight is gonna give us an immense amount of practicality into what it looks like to interact with and relate to the Holy Spirit. And and we're gonna talk about that in weeks to come. And yes, Romans chapter eight is gonna give us a ton of practicality about the evidences of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. And yes, we're gonna get to that. We still got four more weeks to look at this stuff together. But here's the danger, and this is why I think we have to start here. Here's the danger. We cannot approach the Holy Spirit like a checklist. And we cannot approach the Holy Spirit like a formula. And we cannot approach the Holy Spirit like a commodity. There's actually a place in the Bible where there's a guy named Simon. He sees that a bunch of people have the Holy Spirit and he recognizes that there's a power within them. And you know what he does? He tries to buy it. He goes up to him, he's like, what's going on with you guys? You got some kind of power? How much for it? And the Bible says that the apostles looked at him and they rebuked him. And they said, you need to repent of that because you cannot interact with the Holy Spirit of God like a commodity. I think it's very, we have to be very careful. Listen, when the Bible talks about how we rightly relate with the Holy Spirit, do you know what kinds of words it's gonna use? Look at this, the Bible's gonna say, how do we interact with the Spirit? We're to be led by the Spirit. How do we interact with the Spirit? We walk by the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. We let the Holy Spirit guide our lives. Now, I'm just saying, you don't go for a walk with your checklist. You're not like, well, me and my checklist gotta go sort some stuff out. We're gonna go for it. You don't do that. What do you do that? You, you do this with a person. And just like Kevin talked about last week, we have, last week, we have to understand that if we're gonna come to the Holy Spirit, we have to come to him correctly. And how do we come to him? He's a person. He's a person. Not a checklist, but a person to be interacted with. And how do you interact with a person? How do you interact with a person? Well, this might sound really basic, but I think it starts here. You start by getting to know them. If I, wanted to, if I wanted to have a relationship with you, I wouldn't start by asking you what you can do for me. I would start by asking you, tell me about you. Who are you? What are you passionate about? What do you love? And I believe that if we're gonna enter into a true, genuine relationship with the Holy Spirit, it has to start here. Not by asking the Spirit what he can do for us, but by asking, who are you? I wanna know you, I wanna know you. And this is why we have to start here is because the Bible is telling us, the Holy Spirit is telling us through his word, I've come to give life. And so we wanna start by knowing him and interacting with him. I'm gonna ask the band to come up and 
as they do, I, I'll end with this, this one last thought and then we'll pray. Um, but you know, this whole conversation, I couldn't help but remember this interaction that Jesus had in John chapter six. And I won't replay the whole thing, but basically the Bible tells us in John six that there was an entire crowd of people who were coming to Jesus. And the reason they were coming to him is because Jesus had this, had this, he had this ability to perform miracles and give people food. You know, Jesus fed the 5,000 and all that. So the crowds are coming to Jesus, and the Bible tells us that the reason that they're coming to him isn't because they want Jesus, but it's because they want what Jesus can do for them. They want food. So Jesus sees this. He recognizes this. He sees that the people are coming to him, not for him, but they're coming to him because of what he can give them. And so Jesus actually confronts them, and he says, he says to them, you're coming to me for bread. He says, but you need to understand that I am the bread. I am the bread of life. And that, of course, offends them. That offends them pretty badly. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't apologize. He says it again. I am the bread of life. And he explains himself that way. And the people are very offended. And then Jesus says this to them. He says, the spirit gives life. Because, you know, that's what the spirit does. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words that I am speaking to you, the words I have spoken, they are full of the spirit and they are full of life, is what Jesus says. The Bible says the crowd is offended and they all walk away because they don't want that. They want food. They want their appetites filled. That's, they want the life that they want, not the life that he wants. And so they all go away. They leave, except for the disciples who are there. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, do you guys want to go too? He asks them. And then Simon Peter, who you know, notoriously gets it wrong a lot, <laughs> totally nails it. And look what he says. He said, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have life. Your words are life. Your words, which are full of the Spirit, give life. They give life. Now, do you notice what he said? This is so powerful to me. Peter didn't say, Jesus, we agree with you all the time. You never offend us. You've never hurt our feelings. You just always tell us the things that we want to hear, and you always give us the things that we want. He doesn't say that because that's not true. What he says is, where else are we going to go? Because your life, because your life. And so I think the question that I have to end with today is just simply this. What about you? What about you? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit gives life? Where do you go to find life? Where do you go to find, to, 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 to experience the fullness of life? And I think the question that we need to ask is just simply this. We just need to ask, are we willing to come to him, not as, as, we, as we desire him to be, but as he truly is? And I think we have to start there. As we talk about the Holy Spirit in weeks to come, as we begin to talk about interacting with him, the real question is, do you want that? Do you want a relationship? Do you want a moment-by-moment, day-by-day, step-by-step interaction with the God of the universe through the Holy Spirit? Or do you just want a checklist? Or do you just want him to do some stuff for you? Or do you want him? So we have to start there before we even get into what it means to practically follow the Holy Spirit. It begins with a willingness in your heart to want to have a real relationship with the God of the universe through the Holy Spirit. That is on offer to you from the God of the universe. And so what I want to encourage you to do is as we worship and sing, maybe just talk to God, interact with him with the things that he's showing you now, and maybe even just tell him, 
Say, God, that is what I want. I, I want to invite you. I want to have a real relationship with you, with you. I want to know you, and I want to hear you, and I want to follow you, and just express your desire to him for that. I think that's where we have to start as we look at Romans chapter eight together. Let's pray. Jesus, I do just want to say thank you for your word. Your word is full of your spirit and your word is full of life. And so God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to help us to come to you not as we want you to be, not as we desire you to be, but as you truly are. Spirit, help us not to come to you as a checklist Help us not to come to you as a formula, but as a person. And I pray that you would help us to walk with you and know you and, and, and to, to truly, genuinely get to know your heart and your desires for our life. God, thank you, because you give life, because you give life. That means that we have someone to thank for our life. So thank you. Thank you that you've given us the life that you have. And thank you for giving us new life in your son, Jesus. I pray that it is in these next moments as we worship and that we sing, that you would just speak to our hearts and help us to speak to you honestly and sincerely wherever we might be in our relationship with you. Draw us to yourself. You give life. You give life. And I pray that you would bring life into the dead places of our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name.